the way vision worked in the ancient world is what we call extra mission. And no one ever talks about that. We, we have a modern view of, of vision, which is, you know, the light refracts and hits our eyes and et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, well, in the ancient world, they did not know our science. And so Plato, Socrates, and those guys, the, the theory of how sight worked was there was a light in your eyes. It's called the light of your eyes. And when you opened your eyes, light rays left your eyes and went and touched whatever it was looking at. It's a deeply embodied knowing. You're, you are in touch. Whatever you see, you're touching. Kevin Johnson, welcome to Methods. Thank you so much. So um, it's been a long time coming. We had talked about uh, speaking probably like what, eight months ago, six months ago, something yeah. like that? Oh, probably eight months is generous. We were probably closer to a year. <laughs> <laughs> and and life happens as it does. Yep. Um, but I'm glad to have you finally on and glad to, you know, quote, meet you uh, informally. Um, yeah, so why don't we start with giving our listeners a bit of your religious background. Where did you uh, cut your teeth religiously? Mm. Well, um, I'm not going to assume anyone uh, even knows who I am or heard any background, but if, if people have heard me in the past, this might sound a little repetitive and I'll apologize to those people. But for those who have not heard of me um, or, you know, listened to me in the past, um, so I was raised Roman Catholic uh, in uh, Connecticut, and I was I was raised in a Roman Catholic household, um, and I, I still identify as Roman Catholic. I'm, I I still consider myself Roman Catholic, but uh, I always you know kind of qualify that because you know what do you mean by that? There's so many versions of that, uh, depending upon history and where you are in the world, et cetera. Uh, Catholics in the United States are very different. I discovered this as I was starting to do things internationally. Catholics in the United States are very different than Catholics in Africa or South America or Asia. So what do you mean by Roman Catholic? Uh, well, I mean, so that gets into a little personal history. So I was raised Catholic and my parents, you know, sent us to religious training, you know, CCD. I went to public schools, but, you know, you got your typical Sunday school kind of religious training, uh, received all the sacraments, et cetera. But I always tell people when they ask me the religious question, it always uh, comes back to, I, I centers around or circles around for me. When I was about 11 or 12, I, I've tried to figure this out. I've even talked about this uh, in some of the early episodes of the podcast, uh, Encountering Silence. Um, when I was about 11 or 12, my uh, father went through kind of a religious awakening. He was raised Catholic himself, was a good altar boy and uh, did those kinds of things and always went to church, etc. But, you know, it kind of like for a lot of people, religion just kind of fades in and out. So, you know, we'd go to church, but it was another really a big deal. But around the time, like 10, 11, 12, school, church became an important thing for our family. We really started to go more uh, purposely. Uh, we started to do like a lot more religious things. And my father became involved in the church very much. Uh, he became a Eucharistic minister and then entered uh, the diaconate. He decided he wanted to be a permanent deacon in the church. And so he started to study that and started to do things in the in the church. And that really did affect me as um, I was the, I'm the oldest in my family, uh, one of three boys. And so 
when you see your dad doing something right at the age of like 10, 11, 12, when you're trying to figure out what does it mean to be a boy or a man, you know, this is what dad's showing you what it means. And and this was really interesting to me. I also loved school. I was very good at reading and writing and imagination and creating. And all of a sudden, religion became another thing, another book to read, you know, read the Bible, learn some stuff. And, and, every, and all the adults in my life were telling me this is important. So right around that time, I started to take that very seriously. I was the geeky kid in religion class that knew all the answers. Um, I had a very good memory. So by accident, I kind of memorized Bible verses and, you know, teachers would ask me questions and I'd be like, yeah, that comes from Matthew's gospel. And the teachers would be like, what? Oh my God, <laughs> who is this 10-year-old who knows this comes from Matthew's gospel? Um, but the big thing that happened that kind of surrounds, you know, and explains my religious upbringing is one day in church, my father had to go do something at church and he brought me and he went into the back and was talking with the priest in the sacristy. And I sat in a quiet pew. It was dark. All the lights were off and I was all by myself. And I decided to pray. And in that moment of prayer, uh, to this day, I still don't know what happened. Um, you know, some people have tried to ask me, and I, I guess I can throw words around like mystical experience or had a vision or did something. Something happened there that doesn't normally happen in everyday prayer. and kind of freaked me out. Uh, no one else had ever said anything happened like that. Um, I thought, am I losing my mind? Do you tell people this, et cetera? And um, so that kind of directed me the rest of my life. I've been asking the question, what the hell is that uh, ever since? I, I, I got into religion more and more. Um, I went through my typical stages as a teenager, rebelling, not wanting to be religious, not wanting to go to church, and then went to college and actually ended up at a Catholic university by accident, not because it was Catholic, but but I thought it was a good university. So I went to Fairfield University, which is a Jesuit school in Connecticut, and for the first time realized that you could study religion academically. And that was like the marriage of two things inside of me. Here's this religious question that I'm interested about. Like, what the hell is that? What happened to me when I was that little kid? And then I was good at school. So that really married the two. And I was like, this is amazing. And I took every, I became a religion major. I took every religion course I could take. Um, thought I was going to be a priest, but then met my wife. You know, God has a funny sense of humor. Uh, <laughs> and so uh, then realized the priesthood was not a position for me. And then I left and I didn't know what to do. I went to practice law and I did that for a little bit thinking, you know, because the Jesuits were good at teaching about justice and, and treating the world with ethics and justice and uh, helping the poor, et cetera. I thought I'll be a, I'll be a lawyer and fight for justice. And right. uh, so I went out into the law world and realized the law world wasn't necessarily interested in justice. <laughs> it was interested in law and the two sometimes meet and sometimes they don't. Um, and I was really discouraged and then went back to grad school. I went to Yale to get my master's in religion and thought, okay, I'm going to teach religion and do stuff. Not realizing that there's not a lot of, you know, teaching positions out there academically. There's not a lot of college professor jobs open. There's less and less even now. Um, and so I went in that direction, but the Jesuits opened up this, again, this idea of studying religion academically with my mind thinking 
That caused another crisis because as I got older and I pursued that even further, I reached the limits of what knowing and thinking can get you. And I, again, had this huge kind of crisis of faith and I thought I, I must be an atheist or something. Um, and I'm, here I am studying to get a master's in religion. I think, and I don't believe in anything. It all doesn't make sense. And I actually started to teach because I needed to make money. I started to teach at a Catholic high school and, to make money. And they were going to pay for my master's degree and they were going to give me insurance. And I said, this is great. Okay, I'll do that. And they said, you have to teach world religions. And so that was for the first time in my life I was exposed to, I have to study world religions. And I'm a geek. So if you tell me I have to teach something, I have to know it. So mm -hmm. I then went into the Yale library and taught myself world religions. I took every book out I could on Hinduism, on Buddhism, on Judaism, on Islam, et cetera, et cetera. And I studied it and then taught my students and felt myself completely attracted to every religion in the world. I just said, why am I Catholic? This is stupid. These other religions get it. Um, and was totally... Uh, attracted by this. And it's funny, a lot of people who study other religions talk about this. And, and Barbara Brown Taylor, the author, just wrote a book of, that just came out last year. It summarizes it perfectly. It's called Holy Envy. The, yeah. idea, the idea that you bump into these other traditions and you go, wow, that's awesome. I wish I had that. Um, mm -hmm. And it's very common feeling that people have that when they study these other traditions. Um, she's not the first one to come up with that. And um, I noticed that years and years ago. And it's funny now that that book came out. And even she said she didn't qua, uh, create that term. She borrowed it from somebody. So I, I definitely had ho holy envy and I was thinking about it. And then I decided, you know, after spending some time with my Jesuit spiritual director and trying to make sense of everything, thought I'm going to go back and get my master. Uh, once I finish my master's, I'm going to go get my PhD. And Boston College had a program in comparative theology where you can, as a Catholic, what does it mean to look and study other traditions? And I said, well, that's exactly perfect. And I was really into that. And the main tradition that was really speaking to me was Buddhism. Um, I found that the more I studied it, meditation made so much more sense than prayer. Um, and I was very interested in a lot of those things. So I, you know, I, I thought, I think I'm becoming Buddhist. I feel like I'm ready to convert. I feel more Buddhist than Catholic. And so I thought, well, I'm going to enter the comparative theology program, but at some point I'm going to have to come out and tell everybody I'm Buddhist. Well, surprise, surprise. Again, God has a funny sense of humor. I was in the middle of the comparative theology program and I actually became even more Catholic because mm. what ended up happening is I studied and I realized I thought I knew what Catholicism was and I realized I had a huge lack and as I was doing my dissertation work and my writing and my research and everything else, I realized that I had a misinformed understanding of Roman Catholicism and that there was a lot of the same things that were in the other traditions that I was envious of the Catholic tradition has, but isn't often discussed in modern times. And so as I was looking at ancient theology and Augustine and Thomas Aquinas and Bonaventure and Pseudo Dionysius and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, Gregory of Nazianzus, et cetera. I realized, oh my God, all this stuff I love is, is right here in the tradition. And, yeah. and I discovered mystical theology and silent prayer and silence and everything else and said, oh my God, this is foundational to what it means to be Catholic. We have forms of meditation and chant and all sorts of stuff that I thought was cool in these other traditions that I didn't even realize because I just didn't know it and it wasn't told to me.
And so, so if you're asking what my background is, I guess that's a summary of who I am. I'm a person who was formed by something deep, profound, silent prayer when I was young and then tried to think about it, realized thinking had limits, learned imagination, prayer, and social justice work with the Jesuits, and then realized that the culmination of thinking is actually in the silent prayer of when I was a kid. And so now I am a Catholic who follows the teaching of the church that of Nostra Aetate from the Second Vatican Council, that Catholics are supposed to listen to and study and understand the other traditions. And as the Catholic Church says, everything that's good, holy, beautiful, and true in other traditions, the Catholic Church does not reject. It accepts Mm -hmm. and supports and encourages. And so that's where I am. So I'm a Catholic who understands that God speaks in other traditions, that Christ is active in other ways, and that it's beyond what I can know and understand. And I'm fine with that. Well... That's a heck of an intro, Kevin. Um, <laughs> You're like, that's you the know, short version. I could have gone for another day if you wanted. That's the abridged version. Mm-hmm. Nice. Um, you know, what it sounds like, though, is it sounds like, you know, in a sense, the hero's journey. Because because you go out, you you encounter the, the rift, you uh, acquire the boon, and then you come back home. and But home is somewhere completely different than you thought it was. Right. Well, it's that, what's that line from T.S. Eliot, the poem, you know, when you come to the end, you'll, you know, you will come to the end and you'll realize that, you know, you never left. It's that famous, uh, Mm. is is it, what's it, the wasteland or we will come, we'll come back and I'll I'll find the line for you. It's the famous quote of like, you go out, you do it and you come back changed, but you realize at the same time, nothing's changed. Everything's changed and nothing's changed. It's the paradox of that. Yeah. I love that. Um, well, so you being a, uh, you know, scholar of comparative religion probably are the most, um, and a contemplative too, are probably one of the, the most apt speakers I could, you know, have on this podcast, because what I like to do is explore the, um, the praxis and the practice of, different religious traditions and and faith traditions and spirituality um, within the context of kind of like the, the perennial philosophy and and how they relate to one another, not to um, put everything in a blender and zip it up. But I heard recently, I think it was Thich Nhat Hanh um, said, it's, it's like a fruit salad. Like you don't, zip it all up into a smoothie, but you have each discrete component complementing one another. Right. So, so, uh, what do your studies in comparative religion tell you about the connection between Christianity and say Buddhism or, or any religion? Yeah. So, <clears throat> I mean, there's a lot of, I really appreciate the question and the way you framed it, um, because that really is helpful. I often say, I mean, you've done some of my work for me already. When I teach religion, even at the academic level, the problem for us is our culture. Our culture, I mention this all the time, and I discovered this while I was writing my dissertation. I was trying to write the dissertation, and I kept hitting this wall of what's going on. Um, You know, why can't I get at this right? And then it hit me through research and everything 
I realized that about five or six hundred years ago, and I'm not the only one who said this. This is I, I stumbled on scholars and other pe- and other practitioners who are pointing this out. About five or six hundred years ago, we had a huge shift uh, in the way our culture approaches uh, thinking, what it means to be a human being, how to live a human life, and how that connects with religion here. And that shift really is um, what happened is we really lost silence. Uh, And for us in our culture, silence, the focus is on things and ideas and words and concepts and knowledge and facts are important for us. And again, I don't dismiss any of that. That's absolutely essential. It's always been essential for human beings. But the piece that get dropped out is that silence for us, because it's all about facts, when we have silence, we think there's something missing. There's a lack. Mm -hmm. There's a void. Like something, oh my God, we're in trouble. In the ancient world, all the way up until the medieval world, silence was actually a way of approaching life, was a way of opening up to the world and being present. And it was a way of actually knowing. It was a part of knowing in wisdom. And in fact, ancient philosophy in the West, for instance, Plato, Socrates, they often say philosophy begins in wonder. It's that opening of the mind where the mind stops and is just taking everything in and is quiet and open. And so wisdom actually only can start from that place. And our culture like has lost that. We're about to-dos and achievements and our templates and our five hacks that can get us to the top and, you know, self-improvement and et cetera. And there's a place for that, but we completely lose this other piece. So I always tell people that religion, as you said, it's not about beliefs and things and ideas. It's not a creed to stand up. Sure, creed has a place, but religion and spirituality is a praxis. It's it's things you do and a doing that allows for you to open up. It's a way of life and to actually see all of life as it is. So for me, to answer your question, what is the connection? I think of it not as a perennial philosophy. See, the the idea, I, I hear that all in a lot of places, and I understand where that comes from. There's this idea of like, you can trace out these threads in all these different areas, and it sounds like they're talking about the same thing. But I think that's a problem for our cultures, because we think when we think of philosophy, we think of abstract principles and ideas. That's what we mean by philosophy. But philosophy originally was like religion. It was a way of life. Mm-hmm. It was a practice. So I like to think of it more, and I take this from one of my friends who wrote a book, um, Silence, a User's Guide, Maggie Ross. She makes a co- she calls it not a perennial philosophy, it's a perennial psychology. Mm-hmm. In other words, there's a common way that the human mind works, no matter what. All human beings have a stomach. Now, yes, your stomach and my stomach are different. You might have a little more problems with like gastric juices or whatever. And so maybe you have an ulcer or maybe you have heartburn or whatever. But you know what? Your stomach digests food the way my stomach does. Sure, there's subtle differences, but it's the same thing. Food enters it and the same kind of things happen. Well, the human mind is like that. Sure, there's differences, but the human approaches reality in a very similar way. And there's going to be these kinds of two moments. And these two moments are the moments of thinking and knowing and rationality, and then this moment of silent receptivity, uh, active receptivity, where you're open to the world. 
And so I think that silent space of you asking, for instance, of Buddhism, where can we connect? Where could Catholics and Buddhists understand each other? It's in that kind of noticing of how the mind approaches ultimate reality, is that there's this silent, quiet space. And Buddhists say the way to engage that is to meditate. Christians say the way to do that is contemplate. It's a very similar process. And it's interesting that in Buddhism and Christianity, they flip the words. For Buddhists, meditation means silence and contemplation means thinking. And in Christianity, contemplation means silence and meditation means thinking. <laughs> so the, the, the way Christians and Buddhists match up is that they both want to talk about how we can a- approach ultimate reality. And the way we both approach, the human mind is going to be the same for both Buddhists and Christians. They both have recognized that silence is the way you approach ultimate reality. Then for Buddhists, that means you'll meditate and come to what is real, what is known. You will come to know the truth, the Dharma. Um, and for Christians, we call that prayer, but it's... You know, and Buddhists say meditation, mm-hmm. Christians call prayer, but the ultimate source of prayer, mm-hmm. the ultimate kind of resting point is what we call contemplation. And that's, again, silence, that ultimately prayer will lead you to the presence mm-hmm. of the ultimate and the ultimate will lead you is to be there in silence and to open to that. And so it's interesting because Buddhists and Christians, they use the same words, but they use them the opposite. For Buddhists, meditation means silence and contemplate means to think. And in Christianity, it's the exact opposite. Contemplate means silence and meditation. Let's meditate on that. It means to think. Um, But they both have these aspects because that's how the human mind works. Mm -hmm. That if you trace out, if you watch how the human mind works, the human mind has these moments of engagement, thinking, quantifying, making sense of reality as it should. And then there's this other moment where, and, and so who's the one doing that thinking? There's an ego who's thinking and planning. And splits the world up into me, you, this, that, in, out. And, and that's what mm-hmm. rational mind does. It's very dualistic and binary that way. And it's linear. Very mm-hmm. helpful, very fruitful, very wonderful. We should do that. And I encourage my students to do more of that, you know, get better at that. But our culture, that's only the only thing on our map. Mm-hmm. We don't talk about this other moment. And this other moment is where ego drops away. You forget about yourself. You're mm-hmm. self-forgetful. You're not self-conscious anymore. Yeah. You're self-forgetful. You disappear. And yet you're completely wide awake and engaging in things. Mm-hmm. And that yeah. moment, both Buddhist, Christians, and all the other traditions of the world, if you dig, I've looked, they all have, quote, mystical or contemplative aspects to it. And mystical is just the word for mystery, Mm -hmm. because in other words, this is something that your mind can't quantify, can never understand, never grasp, but it can engage. It can Mm -hmm. participate with. Um, And so that's that's the problem is our culture. If you can't quantify it and put it down on a chart, then it's not real. Yeah. And that really, as I say to my students when I'm teaching religion, so think about that, that really reduces the human experience down to very little, because a lot of the best things about human life cannot be put on a map. Mm-hmm. Um, forget religion, you know, just talk about love and emotions. And Sure, I mean, you can measure emotions with chemicals.
goals, whatever. But are is, are those really the emotions, or are those the results of emotions? Like that philosophical right. question never goes away. You know? Yeah. Um, or 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 not necessarily the the cause or result, but like a, a mutual. Uh, they're, they're both arising simultaneously. Bingo. And bingo. Like, like the software is not necessarily the hardware right. and vice versa. Right. Right. Um, I mean, and you that can take apart a right. computer and, uh, but you don't know how Microsoft Word operates. Correct. Right. So, yeah. 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 You don't, and you wouldn't, that's always been the problem when people do um, philosophy of mind is that what they call the hard question, the hard problem is the problem of experience. Because mm-hmm. What does it mean to experience? Is there such thing as experience, et cetera? And there's all these arguments about it in a philosophical way. You're never going to get away from that, right? Because there, this this is the, the conundrum of what it means to be a human being. I mean, mm-hmm. there's a part of you that can and analyze and chop the world up into bits, and it needs to do that. It should. Um, it's a very helpful tool. I don't want us to ever stop doing that. It, that would be the end of our species. But if you rest only there and think that's all there is, then you're cutting off an entire section, entire swaths of what it means to be a human being. I mean, it, it just doesn't seem very scientific. Like It's like you're ignoring an entire section of life and pretending it's not there. It's kind of silly. Yeah. That, that, that reminds me of, and I, I've said it, I, don't, I think I've said it on here before, but how uh, my probably admittedly limited understanding of, of Kant and of Hegel Mm. Um, I, I do think that they agree on things more so than they disagree. Um, I just don't know if they knew that because to me, when I, when I look at Kant, you know, the, the ultimate knowledge of we, we can't achieve or realize ultimate capital T truth. Whereas Hegel would say, no, we can. And that antagonism is the big mm. T truth. Mm. So yeah, it seems like, like, yeah, I see what you're doing there. It seems like they're uh, both approaching the issue. Kant is being very um, clinical, right? He realizes mm-hmm. that, like, I'm writing a critical, you know, his critique of pure reason. So he's writing a critical analysis of something. And so a critical analysis, by definition, means he has to stay within his terms. He has to be able to label it. And so he says, well, look, there's a whole bunch of things that are outside these terms. I can never get there by definition. I just can't mm-hmm. do it. That's the phenomenal realm. I mean, the noumenal realm. Uh, you know, I can, I'm can. i stuck in the phenomenal realm. I can label those things. I can talk about that. But I realize there's this other realm. And then Hegel's kind of like, all right, cool. I'm fine with that. But like, he actually tries to engage. It's almost like, like I was saying to you before, one is trying to do the thinking and the labeling. The other one is saying, hey, it's a process. It's mm-hmm. a, so in, if you're engaging in the process, then you actually come to an understanding. Yeah. You know, and, 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 and that's it. You know, I mean, it's an interesting way to look at Hegel and, and Kant to kind of put them in those perspectives. Yeah. And, and just so nothing's lost in translation out there, um, when you say silence, you're not speaking of audible silence and lack of noise and sound and right. you know, having the privileged position of like not having kids and right. being able to meditate all day right. and right. that kind of thing. You're talking about what exactly? Yeah, no, I'm glad you asked. It's a great question. So that's one of the very first things we talk about in Encountering Silence. Um, and for those people who you know, maybe again, haven't listened to us or don't know. There's a documentary called In Pursuit of Silence. My co-host Cassidy Hall uh, on the podcast with me was one of the producers on that. And uh, we also 
invited the director to come and we talked to him. But In Pursuit of Silence does a really good job of that. It's a documentary about this idea of silence. What do you mean by silence? And both the podcast, the documentary, and and the way I'm talking about it today, and my friend Maggie Ross in her book, Silence, A User's Guide, silence, I do not want people to equate as a phys- physical silence, like decibels. That's not mm-hmm. what we mean. There's a place for that. Uh, noise pollution is a huge problem. Um, and we do need kind of silent, actual physical silence. It's actually good for human beings to get that. Uh, to get away from cities, uh, airplanes, leaf blowers, you know, to have periods of time of downtime. It's good for physically, emotionally, psychologically. So there is a place. But the way we're talking about silence, the way Encountering Silence is in Pursuit of Silence, that documentary, what I'm saying here, what I mean by silence is this. Silence is the shift in consciousness when um, you are no longer self-conscious, you are self-forgetful. And yet you are deeply engaged in the world. So mm-hmm. this is this is what I call the blind spot of the mind. That in order for us to know reality, that and it happens all day. If your mind is working well, if you do not have a mental illness and your mind is functioning very well, this happens every day and you miss it. You don't notice it. But it's the moments where you your ego and everything drops offline and yet you're still engaged in reality. This is not some weird esoteric trance. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm out tripping on drugs. I'm having visions. This is just normal every day. This is how your mind works and processes information. There's times where you're aware of yourself. Like right now, what we're doing, this is very self-conscious. We're recording a podcast. Listeners are listening. They know they're listening to a podcast. They're doing something. They're engaged. That's self-conscious awareness. That's thinking. That's not silence. There are moments, though, where all of a sudden you can drop away. And you are deeply engaged, and yet you're not there. And I try to give a hint to people, I to show people that this happens. I said, have you ever read a really good book or and not been disturbed and got lost in the book or a good movie? No cell phone, no one's bothering you. The, you, know, you just get lost in the movie. So whether the movie or the book, at some point, if you're not disturbed, like if the movie, when it ends, the lights go on and it wakes, or... All of a sudden you sit up and you put the book down. Let's do the book one. That's easy. I sit up. I've been sitting on the couch. I'm reading the great book. I'm so lost and it's great. All of a sudden I stand up and I'm like, ah, my neck hurts. Why? Mm-hmm. Well, you, I was sitting there reading a book. I was not sitting there going, I'm sitting on the couch right now having a lovely experience. My neck is at a 45 degree angle. I am holding the book in my hand. See, that would be a very rational, aware of myself, what's going on. I'm thinking, I know I'm holding a book. I'm talking about those moments where you get so lost in the book, whatever's happening to the character is happening to you. Or you mm-hmm. get so lost in the movie, you whatever happening on the screen is happening to you. You're not thinking, right? If you're in the movie theater and you're watching that movie and I lean in and I go, you know, this is a movie, right? Right. All of a sudden, I've made you self-conscious. Right. You you were up up on the screen. You completely forgot you had a body sitting there. You were in the screen, right? Mm-hmm. And then, so I say to, why is that silent? Because how would you describe what you were doing there? You could say I was reading or watching a book, or watching a movie, but I could say no. What were you doing? And you're like, I. There's no words for what was happening. There's no ego there. Mm-hmm. There's no being there. There's no one aware there. There's just mm-hmm. awareing happening. There's just Mm -hmm. consciousness happening. There's no being knowing they're having consciousness happening. 
right? And so that's the that's what I mean by silence is that kind of self-forgetful moments that happen where we get absorbed in things. I say this too, athletes sometimes talk about flow or being in the mm-hmm. zone because they don't they're not thinking about catching the football. They just catch the football, you know? Yeah. Like and, and so th- this you drop away, you disappear. You're so engaged in activity in the world or whatever that you forget. Now, that's not exactly silence, but it's pointing in the direction. I'm saying, see, do you see how there's, you're able to be in the world and not aware of yourself? I'm mm-hmm. like, that's what I mean. You're moving in that direction. And so when I say silence, when we talk about mystical prayer or silent prayer, we're talking about that moment where all of a sudden it all drops away. And then mm-hmm. all of a sudden you're like, wait, what? Two minutes went by? What? Where'd those two minutes go? Right. If I ask you, where were you? You'd say, I was praying. And I'm like, no, seriously, what were you doing? And you're like, I, I don't, there are no words for what I was doing. Again, silence, no yeah. words, no ideas, nothing. There's, there's nobody there. <laughs> and and I, I notice a lot of times, especially in this kind of like uh, the ex-evangelical culture of complete reversal mm-hmm. from that kind of religious impulse, mm-hmm. what I see is a lot of people kind of, I think the liturgist did a podcast recently on on this subject and it kind of bummed me out because they're bringing up all this like, you know, toxic uh, purity culture stuff and like how um, religion has told them to like deny themselves and how like claustrophobic that feels. And I totally get that, but mm-hmm. I it's reading the Desert Fathers and reading like the, the core mystics of the tradition you know, it's this like ascesis, this personal Christian asceticism mm-hmm. is not to deny yourself in a way of like uh, a version of the self. It's to do that self-forgetfulness so that when those boundaries of yourself disappear, you and the external world are one thing. Bingo. Bingo. I mean, that's a great summary. I mean, that's exactly right, is most people have interpreted. But see, we've interpreted because what's the lens we have, Jory? The lens we have is you're supposed to like have ideas and concepts and a, and a, and a system and here's your self-help and here's the things you do. So it's, instead of ascesis or, or asceticism being a training that allows for you to drop away, mm-hmm. it's things that yourself is supposed to do. Mm-hmm. And really what the, the, all the desert masters and the mystics are saying is like, no, you're bigger than that. Right. <laughs> in yeah. fact, it is claustrophobic to think about yourself. It is a, you're in a box, you're in a small little ego. And, and again, I, this isn't, ego is actually very necessary. It's a component. Mm-hmm. It's a tool that is needed. But the problem is, is that we identify ego as the complete and total totality of ourself. Right. And, and it's like, no, there's a bigger part of you that you're, that it's the blind spot you're forgetting about, you know, you're acting like you can see all parts of the car. No, man, Mm -hmm. there's a blind spot in that mirror and that is part of the car. And if you don't watch that blind spot, you're going to be in trouble, you know, uh, you better, it's a, it's a great tool, but a terrible master bingo. Yeah. Yeah. Bingo. In fact, in fact, the silence should be the master. And the tool and the ego should be su- serving the silence, which is what all the training's about, is to retrain yeah. the ego to listen to the master, because the silence is where you, God, and others all meet. And it, it makes me think of the Vedantic tradition of Brahmacharya and how they would uh, get around in circles and 
speak and read the sutras and divine in a way. And then it, at the end, it would lead to a complete silencing of everyone in the group. Right. And, and that was the, the, the practice that was the, all the theologizing was to lead you to that place. It exactly. wasn't that you start there and then that tells you everything you need to know to theologize. It was the, the reverse. Right. Right. Yeah. And I mean, and that leads right into I mean, the Christian Lexio Divina. I mean, that's the whole mm-hmm. idea is that you read the scriptures and say the prayers and imagine and do all the things you need to do to get to the place where then you finally just sit and rest in the silence mm-hmm. and you rest there. And the, as you said before, Evagrius, uh, you know, um, Desert Father Master, Desert Master says, you know, to be a theologian is to pray truly. And to pray truly mm-hmm. is to theo, theo, you know, theo, theologize, to be a theologian. Mm-hmm. And so that very point, you don't actually even do the theology until you're sitting in that kind of silence. Mm-hmm. And then the silence right there where you're united in love with all that is, mm-hmm. that's, the, that's the ultimate reality. That's, that's the ultimate kind of, um, and hence why we use in the podcast the word encounter. I stay away from the word experience because, again, our culture, the word experience is me knowing I'm doing something. There's right. no word in our culture for that moment of, okay, you're deeply engaged. Something's happening. Mm-hmm. You're there. And yet you're not. You're not experiencing it. You're something else. And I took the word encounter from the great uh, Jewish uh, mystical writer, Martin Buber. Mm-hmm. who wrote in I Thou that yeah. like his understanding of like, listen, there's these two moments. There's I, it, where mm-hmm. I'm the in charge and my ego and everything in the world's an it that I interact with. Uh, and then there's the I, thou moment where myself and everything else has this kind of is equal to me, mm-hmm. you know, and my ego has been dethroned. And there's yeah. this, and so now everybody else gets to step up to the same step with me and we're on the same level and, mm-hmm. and we get to commune, you know? And he was like, listen, that's a, that's a great philosophical piece that we need to add. And he tried to add that to existential philosophy in the West, um, the I Thou book. So I, I've always used encounter for me as the shorthand of, sure, something's happening, mm-hmm. but it's not experience. It's not self-conscious. It's a self-forgetful something else going on. Yeah, it's not you experiencing something, it's experience happening, and then and you're on there. the back end, <laughs> and you're on there, the back end, there. you kind of reflect yourself into, Bingo. you know, yeah. oh, that was me that, that experienced yeah, that, but you weren't the really there. Yeah, after completely. the fact, because like yeah. I said, if you're reading the book, and then I said, what were you doing? You have to stop and go, oh, I was sitting on the couch. You have to add yourself there. In right. the moment, you weren't there. You were lost in that story. You know, right. but then if I ask you to reflect on it, then you were like, I was reading a book and it sounds like, hey, I was having this experience. At the time you were having no experience. Mm-hmm. You know, that's yeah. why that's why it's interesting when you read the Buddhist, like Titnak Han is fine when he talks about mind mindfulness is a tool to kind of get at that place where can you be in a can you do things, can you engage reality without that ego? Can you drop mm-hmm. away? And so he'll say, All right, I'm washing the dishes. Can you get to the place where the dishes wash themselves? Where, mm. where the ego is gone. It's just like what's yeah. happening. Washing's happening here. I'm part of it, but so are the bubbles. So are the dishes. Yeah. So are the water. Everybody's equal here. I'm, I'm just in the mix. You know, yeah. it's not like, or like, uh, you know, <laughs> Ram Dass talks about, uh, 
yeah. driving and he'll like do his, his mantra while he's driving. Right. And then eventually it's the mantra is doing itself and driving is happening. Right. That's right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and that's, and that's these moments and, and it's just not on our cultural map. You know, I think that's mm-hmm. why for us in the West, why a lot of us have been attracted and you'll see this, this kind of contemplative reawakening where people who are into this stuff, all of a sudden discovering yoga, discovering Buddhism, you know, uh, discovering, you know, Vedanta, uh, you know, saying, oh my God, these, this is so amazing. This is so amazing. And it's, on one level, it's because it's exotic and cool and it's the new hip experience to have because the ego mm-hmm. wants new things. Um, you know, so on one level, it's that. But on another level, I think people recognize that we in the West dropped an entire section of what it means to be human. And then you go to a yoga class and you're like, what's going on here? Like, wh- why does, why does this feel so good? You know, some, not everybody, but a lot of people go, this is amazing. And then they're like, I guess I must be Hindu or, you know, and it's, been, right, yeah, yeah. It, 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 and I, I understand that. I don't mock that at all. I completely, they've come home. Somebody's giving them terms and kind of pointing out for them. There's a whole swath of human experience that maybe they were never told to even look at. Um, yeah. When I, when I grew up, I was taught that Catholics were evil mm-hmm. and were the enemy, you know, being a Protestant. So, yeah, totally. um, and then once I discovered, you know, Catholic theology and, and, and practice, like it just reinvigorated the entire Christian tradition for me. Cause I was like, Oh, there was all the, all these things that I admired about Zen and about, um, Hinduism and Vedanta and, uh, Buddhism and Taoism, like all that is in the tradition. It's just because it's been kind of not handled delicately over the ages. Mm. It takes a little more work to, to break open that nut, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, and, I mean, uh, on some level it's, you know, it's nobody's fault and everybody's fault, right? Because it's weird. Like churches, they're trying the best. Like I get it. Protestants or Catholics, it doesn't matter really here. Protestant, Catholic, Greek, Orthodox, Russian Orthodox. The Christian church is trying to tell the message. So mm-hmm. when it tries to tell the message, it's going to translate it in the culture. So you say, okay, hey, culture, what do you recognize? And the culture right. gives you categories. And then the church says, okay, I'll use those categories to explain our religion to you. But mm. the problem, the argument I kind of make is that the culture, the categories of our culture are broken. Mm-hmm. It, it, it doesn't matter about religion, just broken. I don't think it does. And so now you're seeing in philosophy circles and stuff, you don't even have to do religion. I, I hang around in philosophical circles and you see these kinds of arguments in philosophical circles about what does it mean to know and to think. And so epistemology and stuff, are, are, they're all fighting about things. You got whether it's feminism or post-colonialism or post-modernism, they're all like saying, listen, the philosophy has a lot of broken holes here and we're trying to fix those holes. And mm-hmm. one of those holes that is that I've stumbled upon is um, one of the philosophers I follow is David Abram, and I don't know if you know him, but he wrote a book called The Spell of the Sensuous, and it's all about recovery of uh, human beings interacting with nature mm-hmm. uh, and the natural world. And he's making the argument that Western philosophical tradition has removed us from the world, and it's a really bad philosophical problem. And so now he's using Western philosophical categories saying, listen, it's kind of what we're saying here. Like there, there's other aspects to life. There's animism and other things that we should be considering. And so mm-hmm. he tends to call himself like a modern animist who thinks that mm-hmm. everything's alive uh, and rocks and trees and the sky and the clouds and everything is, has spirit in it just like a human does. And he's doing that from just purely philosophical 
you know, and yeah. then yeah. and then if you add in what we're talking about here, that would easily dialogue with that. You could say to Abrams, "Yeah, I, listen, man, I get it. Like our culture really did kind of double down on thinking and analysis mm-hmm. in a way that's limited. And there's a whole other thing that we need to recover. Good philosophically, if you look at Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, they knew this. I, I, I point this out all the time. Allegory of the cave. Please tell mm-hmm. me that the allegory of the cave is not talking about these two moments of knowing." If you're in the yeah. cave, yeah. you think and have ideas and you're trapped, but then you can, mm-hmm. quote, go outside the cave. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Your consciousness can go outside of that ego, can go to this other place. And then, and the way Socrates and Plato talked about is it sees something, vision. It has mm-hmm. a vision of the truth. Mm-hmm. And then it comes back and tells the ego, hey, let, you know, break out of this place, you know, <laughs> and there's yeah. more, there's more to it. I mean, and that was his you know, that's his description of like, what's how the mind works. Um, and, and you, and you see that like all the mystical traditions in the West talk about this, whether it's Islam, Judaism, Christianity, they've all talked about it in various ways about that. You know, Buber talking about encounter, telling the Jewish major focus of the of the Jewish tradition is encounter, having a vision of the divine of ultimate reality, you know, seeing. Hey everyone, this episode with Kevin was so rich and so long of a conversation that I had to split it up in two different episodes. So please click on the next episode to listen to part two of this conversation.